This morning we'll be continuing our series in 1 Samuel. We'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 24 this morning, uh, looking at the whole chapter. Um, but before we dive into that, I want to ask you a question. That is, under what circumstances uh, would you kill someone? And I know you're like, oh, hold on, it's Sunday morning. Come on, let's bring it down, bring it down a little bit. But for real, under what circumstances would you kill someone? And, and I know that uh, for some of you it's like, uh, well, you know, they come on my property. <laughs> they come on my property. Don't mind the dog, mind me. You know, that kind of thing. Like, I know some of you, that's, that's where you're at, but that's not true for everybody. Some people, it's, okay, what if they broke into your house? Okay, now they're in your house. Now you're probably going to take them down, right? But even then, some of you probably not, maybe not, even that. Hey, let's see, maybe there's a mental illness or something. Maybe they're confused. Maybe they're drunk and they're just in the wrong, they came into the wrong house. Let's give them a benefit of the doubt. Uh, okay, but what if they're then pointing a gun at you? Hey, if they're pointing a gun at you, are you going to take them down? Okay, maybe, maybe. Maybe some of you go, hey, you know what? My, my own life's not that precious to me, and, and I know where I'm going when I die, so I'm not, I wouldn't take a life just on my own account, but maybe they're threatening somebody that you love. Okay, well, then maybe, maybe I would, right? Even then, maybe some of you not. What if, what if someone was actively hunting you, and you had the opportunity to take them out? Well, that's the scenario that David finds himself in today. Uh, if we remember, he, that's where he's at with his relationship with Saul at this point. King Saul, Saul's still the king, and he is actively hunting David. He's actively hunting him down. He's, he'll send even a whole army to go and take him out. He's hunting him every day. David lives his life on the run. Saul wants to kill him. He's intent on killing him, and he has the entire army at his disposal, and that's where we find ourselves today in 1 Samuel chapter 24, 1 through 7, where Saul resumes his hunt of David. We'll read here, starting verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day in which Yahweh said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into my hands, and you shall do to him what I, what, as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe, and afterwards David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, Yahweh forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, Yahweh's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is Yahweh's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. So Saul had fended off the Philistines once again, right? He's, he's fended them off. That's what he left. Remember at the end of last uh, last time, last week when we looked at it, he's chasing him around a mountain, and then he has to leave to go and fend off another Philistine raid. But he's done with that, and so he comes back, uh, and he hears that David is now in the wilderness of En Gedi. And so he takes 3,000 soldiers, it says chosen men, so these are his like best warriors. He's not just taking any 3,000 men, he's taking his best warriors to go and take on this uh, personal vendetta, right? This revenge uh, 
mission that he's on. And so he takes these 3,000 men to En Gedi. Now En Gedi means uh, the place of the young goat. And specifically in En Gedi, he's taking him to Wild Goat's Rocks. Right, Wild Goat's Rocks. So this is, uh, you can imagine, uh, a lot of goats around. Everything in this area has a goat-related name. This is a big uh, goat herding area. So there's all these goats, and it's, it's rocky. It's rocky terrain, but En Gedi specifically is an oasis. It's an oasis. You see that green, uh, that green there, and we might think, well, that's not much of an oasis. When we picture an oasis, we picture palm trees and you know, a lot of green, but this is in the desert. Uh, this is a, a, a good place. There's, there's fresh water here in En Gedi, um, and, and there's all these goats. Why the goat herders would bring their, their goats there is there's a place for them to drink green for them to eat. And so this is where David's hiding out. We're among the goats here in En Gedi. Um, and, and so Saul hears that that's where he's at, and he takes his army over to En Gedi. And, and you can imagine, see the terrain. Um, it's very rocky. There's all these, you know, little cliffs and caves and all these places. And so he knows, okay, we're, we're about to, to search this area for David. Um, but first, let, let's, let, I got to get a bathroom break. Right, he needs a bathroom break, and so he goes into the cave, uh, and, and this is his paranoia talking. By the way, it's not as though you might go, oh, oh, so in Bible times, they used caves as porta-potties. Hmm, interesting. No, it's not like everybody did that. This is just Saul's paranoia of going, okay, well, let me get into a place. Okay, there's this cave here. Now I can see everything out there. And I can, I got every, I, I'm not going to be ambushed, right? That's his thought here. And the euphemism that's actually used in those days is to cover one's feet because they would wear these robes. And so then when you squatted down, you covered your feet, right? So that's what they're doing. He's covering his feet. He's relieving himself in the cave. And you can imagine then Saul, uh, David and his men, they're hiding out in this very cave. So you imagine them back in the shadows where it's dark. They can't see them. They're going, is that David? I mean, is that Saul? I think that's Saul coming in the cave. What's he doing? He must be searching for us. He's going to find us pretty soon. We're going to be ready to go. No, grabbing, grasping their swords. They're ready. Okay, if he finds us, he's turning around. What is he? He's squatting down. Oh my gosh, what's he doing? Like I, you know, they can't believe it. Can't believe it. They're, they're hiding back in the cave. What are the odds? Well, again, it's not odds. It's providence, right? This is God's appointment. And, and so that's even what the men recognize. They go, this is the day that you've been waiting for, David. This is the day that God had said. And, the, and they even make this quote. They say, uh, this is the day, behold, your uh, that God had said about this day, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Now, that quote that they say, they say, hey, God said this to you. Maybe he did, but we don't have it recorded anywhere. If he did, if God said that to him, we can't find it recorded anywhere that he told him this. So it's possible that God told him that in prayer and then he told his men and they're just quoting it back to him, but we, I can't find it anywhere if that's true. In any case, David's kind of on board at first, right? He's like, oh, yes, obviously, like, this is the man who's hunting me. Let me go and, and, and take him down. So he's like crawling up there, you know, stealthily crawling up there while Saul is squatted down. 
And, and he gets there, all he does is cut off a piece of his robe. He takes his knife, dagger, whatever he had to do, and he cuts off a corner of his robe. And then it says afterwards, even that, he was convicted, right? So I think in the moment he's doing it, he doesn't even understand quite why he's doing it. It's a very tense moment, obviously, right? He's got his adrenaline up, I'm sure, thinking like, what if Saul notices me? Quick, like, and he, but he's going there to kill him, but then on the way, he ends up changing his mind, cutting off the corner of the robe. Then it says afterwards, he's convicted of, I can't do this. I can't put my hand out against Yahweh's anointed. I can't do it. I cannot kill Yahweh's anointed. And we see in this passage uh, the reason, there's a, good, there's a good example of the reason that when I, because uh, I have to bring this up occasionally because I'll say it, but then new people come and they don't understand why I'm always saying Yahweh when the screen is saying Lord. Okay, so I say that whenever you see, if you're reading certain Bible translations, like the ones I use, the, what I use, the, the English Standard Version, uh, ESV, in other words, there's also New American Standard Bible, NASB. Uh, they take God's name, anytime God's name is mentioned in the Old Testament, and they, they put it Lord in all caps to stand for the word Yahweh, God's name. The problem is that if we read it as Lord, and then we don't recognize the difference between the other times that it says Lord, look for example at verse, uh, look at example at verse 6 here, where he says, he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. Right? You got Lord, Lord, Lord. You got all these things in there, and it's different things. He's talking about different people. He's saying, God, Yahweh, forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, meaning Lord, lowercase l, just the one who is in charge of me, the one whom I serve, the one whom I obey, Lord in that sense, as in Lord, master, servant, subject. Right, that's what he's talking about. He's saying, but that person, my Lord, is Yahweh's anointed. Yahweh's anointed. Saul had been anointed as king of Israel. And David is convicted that he must not harm Yahweh's anointed. He says, he has been anointed by God to be the king. I cannot kill him. Even though God had rejected Saul from being king. And he knows that. He's talked to Samuel. He knows he himself has been anointed. But he says, still, I cannot harm Yahweh's anointed. And even if David had been told that God selected him to be the next king, God had told David he had been anointed himself that he would be the next king, even still, he can't harm Yahweh's anointed. And even though Saul was hunting, hunting David relentlessly. And let's be clear, Saul was a bad king. And not just with David. Certainly with David, right? He, but, he, but not only that, right? He had rebelled against God. He had rejected God. He had not obeyed him. And he refused to repent. He was not repentant of, that, of those actions. That's why God ends up rejecting him, because he first had rebelled against God and rejected God. Not only that, he's not a good leader. He's not a good protector of his people. We saw that demonstrated last week when we looked at the case of uh, the town of Kalia, who came under attack by a Philistine raid. And who did they have to go to to be rescued? They had to go to David. They certainly had already asked Saul to come and send the army to rescue them. Saul did nothing. They have to go to David to be rescued. 
Saul is not a good leader. He's not a good protector of his people. We saw it demonstrated with the case of David and Goliath, right? Where Saul could have been, should have been the one to go out and fight Goliath, but he didn't. We also know that he had serious mental illness. He had serious mental illness, serious uh, capacity where he would have these episodes where he was just out of his mind and, and full of rage and anger and all this stuff going on where he could not think clearly. Not a quality you want in the leader, in the king. But regardless of all of that, he was still the king that God had put in place. He was still Yahweh's anointed. David understood what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 13. In the New Testament, he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that have exist. Those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. As much as there, I mean, there, there are lots of times that I don't like this passage. There's lots of times, and especially, I mean, in the last decade or so, we might say, it has been very difficult to accept this passage, right? For a long time, we look at our leaders and go, how, how is that possibly God's choice? How could that possibly be that God would put them in power? How could God possibly choose these people to be in charge? And I'm not talking about any specific person, honestly. It's about across the board, right? There's no good options. So, when he tells us, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, and there's no authority except from God. There is no authority except from God. Man, that is tough to accept. But it's what David accepts here. And it's what we as Christians and followers of God are called to accept. We're called to accept the fact that God has instituted these authorities and to show them respect, not because of who they are, but because of who God is. Which we'll see David continue to do here in verses 8 through 15. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks you harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how Yahweh gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my lord, for he is Yahweh's anointed. See my see the corner of the robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May Yahweh judge between me and you. May Yahweh avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May Yahweh therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. So David follows Saul out of the cave and calls out to him, which seems like a terrible idea. 
That seems like a terrible idea. Right? Your, your enemy, the one who is hunting you, gets up and leaves the cave without seeing you. You didn't take the opportunity to kill him, and you follow him out and go, Oh, hey, hi, I'm over here. Right? Seems like a bad idea. And even then, he doesn't just do that. He calls him, my Lord, the King. And he says, you are my Lord. You're the one that I obey. You are my king. You're the one that I'm subject to. I am your subject. I am your servant. And demonstrates it by bowing with his face to the earth. David shows Saul this respect that he doesn't deserve. He does not deserve this respect. But he shows him this respect not because he respects Saul, but because he respects God. Right? He says, I... He calls him these things. He shows him this respect because he recognizes that Saul's authority comes from God. And so he is submitting to God's authority as he shows him this respect. And then he tells him that he will not harm him. He says, I don't know who you're listening to, who your advisors are that tell you that I want you, I, I'm going to cause you harm, but I can prove to you that I don't. Because I, I don't, and I had the opportunity to kill you, and I didn't, and I have the proof does this fabric look familiar to you? He holds up that corner of his robe and shows him. And you can imagine Saul probably checked. Like, whoa, what? And recognizes, hey, he spared my life. If he could cut off the corner of my robe, he certainly could have killed me. He shows him that robe. He goes beyond showing him simple respect. In fact, he calls him my father. He says, my father to him, a term of respect and a term of love. What David demonstrates here with Saul is what the New Testament will promote so strongly that we should love our enemies. We are called to love our enemies. It's what David does here. He goes beyond just showing Saul the respect that he is due as king. He shows him true love and kindness. He loves Saul, even though Saul is his enemy. We are called to this as well. Jesus himself tells us this in Luke chapter 6. He says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Romans chapter 12, Paul continues in this theme and says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is an extreme kind of love that we are called to extreme way that we love our enemies. He says to not only love your enemies, but pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. To do good to your enemies. To care tangibly for your enemies. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. You're caring tangibly for those who are your enemies. And he tells them, never avenge yourself. Leave it to the wrath of God. Allow God to be just and to repay. Which is what David proclaims in this passage as well. Verse 12, he says, May Yahweh be judged between me and you. May Yahweh avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. 
He himself is repeating this same concept that we see in the, in the New Testament, that God will be the judge. God will dispense justice. We should rely on him for that. The question really that comes to is, how can we have this kind of extreme love? How do we have, how is it possible for us to love in this way? And it is only possible by drawing on the extreme love that you have received from Jesus. This all comes down to how we see ourselves in relationship to the gospel. Because we must and rightly should see ourselves as wretched sinners saved by grace. If we see ourselves as self-righteous that, hey, we are pretty good people and we are doing pretty, good, pretty okay, Jesus kind of makes up the last little bit that we weren't quite perfect, he makes that up. No, that's not how it works. We are wretched sinners saved by grace. We are helpless, hopeless without him. And if we see ourselves in that way, if we recognize ourselves as having been set free from our slavery to sin, then we will recognize and have compassion for those who are still enslaved to their sin. So what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7, if we go back to chapter 7 in Romans, he says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. He puts forward this idea that I think we see demonstrated in our lives. He says, oftentimes we want to do good. We want to do what's right. We want to help people. We want to love people. We want to do good things. But at the same time, there is this evil that lurks within us, that draws us away from that, that pushes us to rebel, that pushes us to do harm to other people, to be selfish. So I have this war within myself. And Paul, recognizing that war in himself, he calls and says, oh, wretched man that I am. Look at who I am, how at war I am with even my, in my own body. Who will save me from this body of death? He says, this is death, this war that I have to fight within myself. And then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I serve. I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore, we're jumping to chapter 8, and normally we wouldn't read that kind of thing in a passage, but chapter 8 points back to the previous verses that we just read. Therefore, there is no condemnation in Christ for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are no longer condemned. We are no longer seen as sinners. We are seen as being covered by the blood of Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. It is him who sets us free. And when we recognize that we have been set free, when we recognize and identify with that that phrase, oh wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death, and then recognize that in Jesus there is no condemnation for our sin, that we are no longer seen as sinners, we are no longer seen as wretched, we are seen as his, we are seen as beloved, as covered by the blood of Jesus. When we recognize that, we have that righteousness, we will want to show it to other people regardless of how they treat us. 
Because it is not that we love so that others will love us, that transactional kind of relationship that is so common in the world. But we love not because they loved us, but because he loved us first. And so we can love even our enemies as David does here. Picture David here bowed to the earth in front of Saul, saying, I will not harm you. I don't know why you keep thinking that I'm after you. I don't know why you think that I'm your enemy. I will never harm you, but you only do harm to me. And then he relies on God. He doesn't say it's okay. He doesn't say it's fine. You do whatever you want to me. He doesn't say kill me now. No, he says I trust that God will be the judge between us. Let Yahweh be the judge between us. Let him be the one who decides what is right here. I'm going to allow God to be the judge between the two of us. And he will provide justice. He will avenge. He will plead my case. Because we have to remember, even though we're see, if we see David here, and, and I think when we picture this scene in our minds, we still picture like little David. Where we're still picturing little David, like the, the old drawings of David and Goliath, where Goliath is just like yoked, right? And he's, and, and he's like, got all the, the, he looks like a bodybuilder. And then David looks like a little kid, just like, yeah, I got my sling, here you go, woo! Right? And then Goliath goes down and we're like, yeah, David! You know, but it's like a Rudy moment, right? We're like, Rudy, Rudy, David, David, right? But <laughs> that's not who David is. David is hardcore. David is a warrior. When you think of David, don't think of that. Think of like Dwayne the Rock Johnson. He is a killer, right? He is not a wimp. He is a hardcore dude. Remember when he wanted to win uh, Saul's daughter, when he wanted to marry Saul's daughter, Michael. Remember what he did. Saul said, okay, the price is 100 Philistine foreskins. And he goes out and kills 200 Philistines, cuts off their manhoods, puts them in a bag, brings it back to Saul and goes, count them. This is not a wimp. This is a hardcore dude. This is somebody who can take care of business. If he wanted to in that moment, and he is strapped here, he's got his sword on him. And Saul is right there. He's just relieved himself. He's not ready to fight. His men are far away. David could take him out right now if he wanted to. Make no mistake, it is, it's not that he missed his opportunity in the cave. He could do it now. And his men would be behind him, and he could back him up, and, and they would and maybe have a little war with Saul's men, but Saul would be dead. And, and David has, has taken on bigger foes than this. He could kill him now, but he says, no, let God be the judge. And that, if David's willing to do that, how much more should we be willing to do that? And how often do you allow God to be the judge in your disputes? Or do you feel like, no, I have to make justice happen for myself. I have to take this into my own hands to make sure that justice is done for me. I have to make sure that I avenge myself, that I protect myself, that I take care of my own business. But here, he's fully capable of dispensing his own vengeance, and yet he allows God to. He says, let God be the judge. God will deal with you. We'll look lastly here at verses 16 through 22. 
As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared to this day how you have dealt with me, and that you did not kill me when Yahweh put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may Yahweh reward you good for what you have done to me this day. For now, and now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by Yahweh, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Saul's response to this is, is this your voice, my son David? It seems like an odd thing to say. Like, we don't get any indication before this that Saul's like got bad vision or anything. He's standing right in front of him. So he should be able to know that this is David. Why does he say, is this your voice, my son David? And I think what it's indicating is that Saul is hearing him for the first time in years. He's really hearing him for the first time in years because David has broken through that jealous anger. He has surprised him so much that he's hearing him in a different way. He's hearing him in a different way than he has in years. And it, it seems like Saul is remembering David for who he was to him, right? David was his son-in-law. He was his finest warrior. He was the one who he could turn to to take care of any problems militarily. Right? If they go, oh, this city's being raided. Oh, David, go to this. Take your men. Go to this city. Take care of it. David goes, no problem. Takes care of business. Comes back. And then what else is he to him? He's the musician who could calm his addled mind. He's remembering who David was to him. David was never his enemy. He never did anything wrong to him. He was always did good to him. And that kindness that he's showing him now breaks through Saul's calloused heart. And this is he lifts up his voice and weeps. He recognizes, if only for a moment, the harm that he's doing, the, the evil that he's doing. He's convicted of his own sin. And he says, you're more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have only ever repaid you evil. All David has ever done to Saul is good, and yet Saul has done this evil to him because he's so full of jealous anger that he wants to kill him. It leads Saul to confession, right? That his conviction leads to confession where he says, may Yahweh reward you with good for what you have done to me this day, and then even to admit, I know that you shall surely be king. In this moment, Saul even admits, I know you're going to win. I know that you're going to be the king. It doesn't stop him from, he's still going to be on it. As good as this sounds, he's still on a mission to kill David. He's not fully repentant. But he recognizes for a moment the truth. He recognizes what David has done for him. And so he asks David for a promise. Which again, in this moment, is incredibly selfish and more than he should be, and he's, more than he's entitled to. Right? He says, Look, I see the kind of man that you are. I see that God is with you. I see that you're following him. I know you're going to win. I know that you're going to be king. Please, once you're king, promise me that you'll not kill my children. That's what he means when he says, not, you shall not cut off, don't cut off my offspring after me. Don't erase my name from my father's house. He's saying, don't, kill my, don't cut off my line. Don't kill all my children after me. Which is 
what anyone would do, by the way. In, any kind of, in this kind of situation where someone's going to usurp the throne, they have to also kill all of the heirs. You don't want an heir sticking around because if the people are dissatisfied with you, they might go, well, you know, the real king should be this guy who's living over here. Let's get him, put him in place. So when, what Saul's asking him to do is an extreme kind of love where he would tell him, yes, I won't kill your offspring after you. After you're gone, I'm not going to kill your offspring, which is what David promises him. He makes this covenant with him and says, yeah, I'm not going to do that. He had already promised this to Jonathan, but he's saying essentially, I'm not going to kill any of your offspring after you. They make this covenant, which again, is more than Saul's do and more than David is responsible to do. He's again, showing this extreme kind of love. And they go their separate ways. Saul isn't done trying to kill David. His repentance isn't true and lasting. It is brief, temporary realization, but it is not true repentance or it would have had lasting effects. We'll wrap up with this, three takeaways for today's message. Number one, respect the authorities that God has appointed is what we are called to do. And recognize that when we do that, we're respecting, showing respect to God. We're honoring him as the one who puts these authorities in place. Number two, show love to your enemies. And again, we can only do that by tapping into the extreme love that God has shown to us in Jesus Christ. And then lastly, allow God to be the judge and dispenser of justice in your life. Recognize that he will judge in the end. In the end, every knee will bow to him, whether willingly or unwillingly, every knee will bow to him. I'm going to pray here in just a second, and then we're going to take communion in recognition of Jesus' broken body and shed blood. The, the juice that we take represents his blood. The, the cracker represents his body. And um, this is how Jesus told us as his followers to remember his death until he comes, that we, rec- we remember his sacrifice for us. And it is what fuels our lives, not just what saves us initially, but also what gives us the ability to continue to live in this kind of way and and to have this extreme love. And so we take this regularly, remembering the sacrifice that he made for us. So if you are here today and you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I encourage you to take communion with us. And if you haven't done that, I encourage you to make today the day that you do that, that you accept the sacrifice that he has made for you and turn your life over to him, right? Make him our Savior and Lord, that we are going to obey him and follow him for the rest of our lives. If that's something you're interested in after the service, we'll have a prayer team over here. They would love to pray for you. They'd love to help if you pray to accept Jesus as your Savior. You could also come talk to me uh, or any of our elders. Would you bow with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning that we can read this story and see the kind of extreme love that David had that extended even to his enemies. God, and we know that that kind of love only comes from you. So we pray that we would have that that kind of love for everyone in our lives, for our families, but also for uh, people we we run into in our community, some of whom we might even call our enemies, at least those who are, are, are negative toward us or have a negative impact on our life, God. Pray that we would have that kind of love. Pray these things in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.